Hello all, my name is Anoy Padar and I'm here with Dr. Salim Abdul Karim, one of the world's most prominent AIDS researchers. First off, Professor, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. For the first question, what do you perceive to be the most significant challenges, whether they be cultural, logistic, or scientific, in the field of HIV prevention? We now have very good evidence that the use of antiretroviral drugs as treatment in HIV-positive individuals is highly effective in preventing onward transmission. We also have good evidence to show that antiretroviral drugs taken by HIV-negative individuals works superbly as pre-exposure prophylaxis. So we now have within our armamentarium several strategies to prevent HIV. But the entry into making uh, appropriate decisions for treatment, for PrEP, for circumcision, for condoms, is knowing your HIV status. Today, one of our biggest challenges is that we have many millions of HIV-positive individuals who do not know their HIV status. You have individuals who are concerned about the stigma, about being discriminated against, and so don't want to test for HIV. That, to me, is one of our biggest obstacles because it prevents individuals from seeking appropriate treatment or prevention. So you mentioned the stigma that individuals feel. What misconceptions do you feel that the general public may have about HIV transmission or treatment? I've been quite impressed with several uh, national surveys that have been undertaken that have shown that overall knowledge of HIV infection is pretty good and pretty accurate. Of course, there are individuals who don't know about HIV or don't have accurate information about HIV. But on the whole, uh, a large part of the population in several countries that have been surveyed show high levels of accurate knowledge. So it's not a knowledge gap. Instead, it is individuals who perceive potential for stigma, who perceive and have to deal with personal shame or are themselves concerned that in having to deal with knowing their HIV status, that they may be discriminated against, that they may be stigmatized. Much of this is perceptual. In other words, it's what individuals think is going to happen. It's what they perceive to be the problem. It's not necessarily actually occurring. Having said that, we've also seen many instances of individuals actually being stigmatized. And those particularly occurred early in the HIV epidemic, where schools were prohibiting HIV-positive school children from attending, where you had individuals who were being shunned out of our society because they had HIV. Well, that's simply no longer the case. HIV is no longer a death sentence. HIV, we understand how it is transmitted.
with a very different situation today. And so much of this perception of stigma, much of this perception comes from a previous era. And it's going to take us a long time to overcome that. But I believe the more open we are, the more individuals stand up and talk about HIV openly, particularly those who already have the infection, the more we will be able to fight and break the stranglehold of stigma. Going back to the retroviral drugs, um, back in 2010, your team of researchers were able to show that a gel containing the drug tenofovir significantly reduced the chance of a female contracting the HIV virus. How do you think that this breakthrough has impacted the direction of AIDS research and the spread of AIDS over the last five years? In Africa, the number one challenge in the HIV epidemic is the high rates of HIV infection in young women and adolescent girls. Indeed, we will never break the back of the HIV epidemic in Africa if we are not able to deal with that problem. So we have been searching, we meaning uh, my research team, and we are the, the team is led by my wife and myself. The two of us have been trying to find new technologies that could offer women the opportunity to protect themselves from HIV. Having undertaken research for almost 15 years without success, we then decided to change tack and look at whether an antiretroviral drug like tenofovir could offer some protection to women. And so we're very pleased to announce these results at the International AIDS Conference in Vienna in July 2010. And what we did, uh, what we showed was we provided the first evidence that antiretroviral drugs can prevent sexual transmission of HIV. And in this particular instance, we studied a gel, but it's essentially what we were showing was that tenofovir-based uh, drug combinations could prevent sexual transmission. Since then, many other studies have shown this, and we were not alone uh, when we uh, undertook these studies. There were several other parallel studies that were released uh, within the next three to four years after we showed our results. And they have basically shown us that uh, uh, antiretroviral drugs, when used as pre-exposure prophylaxis, are protective in men who have sex with men, in heterosexual discordant couples, in women, men, in injecting drug users. So there are a whole wide range of options any of these individuals could be using tenofovir-based antiretroviral combinations in order to protect themselves from HIV. Another big movement of research is on a HIV vaccine. Um, well, can you describe for me and perhaps uh, a regular layperson, what is the current state of research on an HIV vaccine? So if we look at the current World Health Organization guidelines that are being released on World AIDS Day, the 1st of December this year, they reflect a sea change in how we're going to take the path of getting to zero. And they propose two key strategies, which is universal testing and treating everybody 
regardless of CD4 count, and the use of oral pre-exposure prophylaxis in a range of high-risk populations to protect them from acquiring HIV. So we know we have these good new technologies and the World Health Organization is recommending them. But ultimately, if we are to really stop and get to zero, we're going to need a vaccine. And if we look at the research that has been undertaken, to date, we have one vaccine candidate that showed a glimmer of hope. But we now have a clearer understanding that there are going to be very substantial challenges to an effective vaccine. And that it looks like the best option in terms of what a vaccine should do in humans is to generate what I refer to as broadly neutralizing antibodies. Now the field of HIV research in broadly neutralizing antibodies has seen an explosion of different candidates becoming available, targeting different parts of the virus, and have been showing to have very good breath, are highly potent in killing HIV. And so we have seen a rapid development of this field. And it bodes well because it creates a platform for the next generation, for a new generation of antibody-based vaccines to eventually emerge from this research. So I am more positive now than I've ever been that we may actually be able to manufacture and get a vaccine. Now, we don't have a candidate at the moment. We don't have a vaccine at the moment. But the research points towards a possibility that an antibody-based vaccine may indeed be uh, effective. So what, what are the barriers for these candidates that are preventing us from having um, a possible uh, HIV vaccine? What, what, is, what is like wrong with the new antibody drugs that we're finding? So what we have been trying to do is we've been trying to identify antibodies that have a great deal of breadth. In other words, if you look at the range of different HIVs, the viruses from different parts of the world, from the U.S., from uh, Argentina, from Brazil, from Poland, from uh, Thailand, from Australia, from Zambia, from South Africa. If you look at all of these different viruses, there's a high level of variability in these viruses. So we need a vaccine or we need an antibody that is able to kill a very wide range of these different viruses because of the variability. And we now have several candidates that are able to do that. At the same time, we need these antibodies to be potent. In other words, we need them to be able to kill these viruses at very low levels and concentrations because it's so expensive to make these antibodies. And in key parts of the human anatomy, where we'd like to get high levels of these antibodies, it's often difficult to do so, such as the female genital tract. So we have substantial obstacles in finding the combination of breadth and potency in an antibody. 
But even if we show this antibody can protect against HIV, we still have the remaining challenge, which is how do we make a vaccine that is able to elicit those antibodies? Because many of these broadly neutralizing antibodies take many years to develop in humans. They go through multiple mutations and changes in the human being before they actually develop this potency and breath. So it's going to be it's going to have to require a very substantial number of breakthroughs in our understanding about how to uh, fine-tune the human immune system to pick out the right cells to stimulate and to give them the right antigen so that they make these broadly neutralizing antibodies as, in order to be able to protect the body from HIV. Related to that, earlier in July, the Baruch Lab published a paper on the SIV, or Simian Immunodeficiency Virus Vaccine, that was effective in rhesus monkeys. Um, what, what are your thoughts on uh, what this means to the progress of AIDS research? Because I remember uh, reading about that and uh, really kind of sparked my interest in the HIV vaccine. So I was wondering what you thought this has done for the field. Dan Baruch, who comes from the Brigham Reagan Institute in Boston at Harvard University has done some amazing research looking at a range of antibodies, and one in particular is called PGT121. He provided this antibody, this PGT121 antibody, to monkeys. He then challenged them to see if they were able to protect against HIV, uh, uh, SIV, which is the equivalent of HIV that we use in monkeys. And what he found was that these antibodies are quite effective in being able to protect monkeys from acquiring SIV. He did another study where he provided these antibodies to monkeys who had already been infected with HIV. And there, what he was able to show was a very intriguing result, that indeed the monkeys were able to clear the virus. Now, humans have never been able to do this. So when, when these results became available, of course, they engendered a huge amount of interest because you know, to have a monkey that's able, who has SIV infection and with an antibody is able to clear it, it opened up a whole new area of research and a whole new world of options in terms of a cure. Now, what we now know from the Baruch laboratory and their research is that every one of those monkeys that had been shown to have cleared the virus actually turns out they didn't. So they had viruses hidden within their bodies that the antibody simply could not reach. So all of those monkeys, uh, the virus has come back. It's a bit disappointing. We had hoped that antibodies would uh, offer us an opportunity to look at cure as well. Well, that now does not look as promising as it did initially in the short-term follow-up that Dr. Baruch did. However, having said that, what we are, uh, what remains as a, as a strong possibility
of an overall strategy to achieve a cure. And there are several groups studying that at this point. So a little bit of a side note. Uh, earlier this year in October, you were awarded the Platinum Lifetime Achievement Award for your contributions to your field, um, along with many other awards. Uh, as many of our listeners are undergraduates that are aspiring to uh, adjourn upon their path of research, uh, do you have any words of advice for young researchers? Or what about your research drove you to attain the success that you have uh, garnered? Thank you. Going back to our conversation about uh, perhaps some of the social stigmas, um, how would you describe the social influence um, in the spread of uh, HIV and AIDS in, uh, let's say, South African countries as compared to other countries um, in other continents or around the world? So it doesn't matter whether we are looking at men who have sex with men or injecting drug users in Eastern Europe or looking at uh, young women acquiring HIV infection in Zimbabwe, in all of those settings, their risk is fundamentally being influenced by how our society is looking at the problem of HIV and how individuals within our society are responding to the challenge of HIV. What we would hope for is that they would respond with openness, that they would want to know everything there is to know about HIV, that they would want to know whether they themselves have HIV. And depending on whether they're positive or negative, we would hope that they would take up the challenge of either treatment if they're positive or ensure that they take up the existing prevention strategies for those who are HIV negative. I believe that we can achieve the very ambitious goals that UNAIDS has set for the world. And the, the Sustainable Development Goals have further enhanced our, our broad approach to dealing with HIV. Ultimately, we're not going to get there if we remain complacent. We're going to have to put our backs to the wall. We're going to have to put our shoulders to the wheel 
And we're going to really have to work hard, every one of us, if we are to achieve the goal of getting to zero. So for implementing this social change, what do you, what do you think is the best course of action and how do you think that perhaps students or people who aren't as well-versed researchers can contribute to the fight against AIDS? I think every individual in our society has an opportunity to contribute in the fight against AIDS. I believe everybody could be playing an important and positive role. Whether it's how you treat your own life, your own risk, whether you're, you, you, you ensure that you yourself take the adequate precautions and so on. But I think as, as, as young students, as the intelligentsia of our society, it behoves all of us to make a contribution that goes beyond ourselves. For us to provide the kind of sage advice, wisdom to all around us, family, friends, colleagues, so that each of them is able to truly appreciate how HIV can be prevented and create the opportunity for them to remain HIV free for the rest of their lives. I believe that students have a very particular role because they're in that vulnerable age and because they are the ones interacting with the range of risk-prone uh, individuals, whether they are uh, injecting drug users or whether they are prison inmates, whether they are the uh, men who have sex with men. So all of those groups, we as students need to reach out to them. We as faculty need to reach out to them in a way that we try and get involved in programs that can get to the very heart of this problem and ultimately help us to take that path towards zero by 2030. Oh, so um, I was actually going to ask where you felt the field of HIV prevention was going in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. So do you, do you think that, you know, will we even need research after, um, let's say, f 15 years? UNAIDS and WHO, the World Health Organization, have set a target, and the UNAIDS report spells out that target of uh, uh, reaching uh, a situation where we can break the back of the HIV epidemic by 2030. And in those targets that have been set for 2030, we essentially are heading in that direction if we are able to scale up in a very smart way the technologies we already have for HIV prevention and treatment. So we know what the vision is, and UNAIDS has given us those goals and given us that vision about what we should aim for by 2030. The challenge now is to find the resources, to find the services, to support the services, and to enhance the programs in order to take us down that path if we are to achieve those goals. How do you feel that uh, the globalization in general of the world um, and interactions between different countries have increased or changed the way research has been done about AIDS since uh, 
since the discovery of HIV and AIDS? In many ways, HIV highlights some of the greatest challenges and the greatest achievements in global health and at a level of globalization. So we know that every country that is a member of the United Nations has reported at least one case of HIV infection or AIDS in their country. So no country in this world has been spared. Every country in the world has got the problem of HIV. Now, in some countries it's a lot worse, and in other countries it's a very minor problem. But no country has been spared. But if we look at how we have responded at a global level to HIV, it has fundamentally been dependent on global solidarity. And that global solidarity has come from wealthy nations providing funds to the Global Fund, to PEPFAR, and to organizations like UNITAID that have been able to draw on resources available from wealthy countries and provide them to poorer countries so that every person who needs treatment, every person who needs prevention is able to get it. That cost is not the difference between living and dying. That indeed, as an as a, as a, as a entire humankind, we take responsibility for making sure that nobody dies of HIV because they cannot afford the medication. So I think we have seen this kind of globalization of the epidemic and its response in HIV. We are now starting to see similar moves in relation to tuberculosis, in relation to non-communicable diseases. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that HIV has created a platform for us to deal with these problems at a global level. Okay. Um, I think we're reaching near the end of the interview. Um, uh, I'd just like to say thank you again uh, for taking the time to speak.